Welcome to We Should Probably Be Studying. My name is Paula Kincaid, and I am joined with my co-host and dear friend, Nick Johnson. Nick, how are you? I'm good. How are you, Paula? Oh, I'm good. I could not complain. So if you're new to this podcast, be sure to give us a five-star rating on whatever podcast streaming platform you're using, because that will help spread awareness of our podcast through some sort of fancy algorithm that makes more people see our show. So be sure to give us a five-star rating. Yes, we need to stay in the algorithm. Also, uh, make sure you hit the follow button so you can stay up to date with our future content. We are just a guy and a girl trying to leave our mark in the social sciences. And the purpose of this podcast is to get the behind the scenes take on really interesting articles being published in the top management and organization journals from the people who know the work the best, the authors themselves. Whether or not you're a nerd at heart like me and my co-host Nick, or just a regular Joe or Jane Doe, we hope to provide an outlet for all people to learn about really interesting and insightful research, regardless of who you are and what you do to contribute to society. So sit back and relax. And enjoy our show. This is We Should Probably Be Studying. So today we are joined by Mark Bellino, Marisa Flores, Thomas Kellerman, and Ryan Beisel. They wrote a paper titled, May I Please Go the Extra Mile? Citizenship Communication Strategies and Their Effect on Individual Initiative OCB, Work, Family Conflict, and Partner Satisfaction. And this paper has just recently been accepted to the Academy of Management Journal, and it is currently in press and available online, so be sure to go check out the paper. Hi there. How are you? Good. How are you doing? Oh, I'm good. It's been a long day. <laughs> yeah, I feel the same way. <laughs> How about each of you uh, introduce yourself and just tell us a little bit about what you do, um, what you study, and then a little bit about yourself personally. Whoever wants to go first. Sure. So I'm Mark Bellino. I'm a professor of management here at the University of Oklahoma. My real interest has been in understanding how people manage the potential costs or burdens associated with being a good organizational citizen, going the extra mile at work. Also do some work on impression management, but uh, citizenship and sort of the dark side of citizenship is, is sort of my main area of expertise. Personally, I'm, you know, a proud proud father of two girls who are in college now and uh, just dropped the second one off and I've got kids on both coasts so I'm I'm dealing with empty nest syndrome in in the household right now uh, so this is like day two of empty nest and uh, we're hanging on by a thread on it oh I can't imagine because right now I'm in the toddler stage with one of mine. Oh, so it, goes, so, it goes so fast. It goes so fast. Everyone comes and you don't believe it, and then it, and then it happens, and it's, you know, anyway. Yeah, mine is almost two, and they are long days. And for, like, four hours a day, he goes to play care. Uh, so, yeah, he can get a little bit bigger. <laughs> <laughs> I, miss, I miss those days. Yeah. <laughs> People say that, but you think, like, 
why <laughs> just just right now though because we're in the thick of it we're in the thick of it uh, <laughs> right right there around you not 20 hours in both directions i know yeah. that just makes me sad that makes me sad um i'll go ahead and go next i'm uh, marisa flores i am a phd candidate in the communication department at ou university of oklahoma um i took a class with dr bellino in the management department as part of my PhD program and just loved it because I didn't really realize it at the time, but a lot of my interests and research interests and just things that I'm really passionate about kind of fall um, in the management area of literature and also in organizational communication, which is what I'm going to get my PhD in. So I, I found a new, not a new love, but like an adjacent love to communication, which is where I have all my degrees in communication, so I, I hadn't really been exposed to this other kind of way of looking at things. Um, and so my research has kind of, you know, you, you start studying one thing and then you realize that's not your jam. And then you kind of trickle. So I kind of started looking at organizations and um, recent American immigrants and their perceptions of temporality. So I was really interested in aspects of time and perceptions of time and how people talked about time and worked uh, with work time mm -hmm. uh, with, if they just came from another country. So I started there and then uh, took Dr. Bellino's class and started uh, getting really interested in organizational citizenship behaviors. And then I thought, well, we should look at this from a like a communicative perspective. How do people talk about it? Um, and then eventually, how do people talk about it with their spouses? And can we come up with these categories to describe these types of conversations or find any kinds of patterns? This project originated was from literally 2016 when I took <laughs> Mark's class and then wrote a proposal about it, which now looking back, it's so embarrassing. It's very terrible. But it evolved, right? It evolved and then got more input from wonderful people and turned into this glorious beast that it now, is. I, I, I think you actually submitted that proposal in December of 2015. What? Oh, <laughs> and, and I actually, I called it up um, earlier today and the proposal was about the normalization of overwork, was kind oh. of how it was framed a little bit. Okay. And, and it really hadn't gotten into the conversation with the partner at that point. That was later then. Okay. But it was very, it was very much focused on uh, conversation and communication around being a good citizen and work-family conflict. So that was that element was definitely in there. But it was interesting because I went back and looked, and mm -hmm. um, and it's been so long I can't even really remember. Yeah. <laughs> and December so 2015 much. is when you submitted the proposal. Um, I've been in the program a long time. <laughs> you can tell, as you can tell. But this is my last semester. Thanks. Yes, fighting. Praise the Lord. Yeah. Uh, I'll, I'll go. Uh, yeah. So I'm at uh, Kansas State. Uh, I'm Tom. I, I studied under Mark. He was my advisor at Oklahoma. I this I, this is the project. I think it was the first or second one that Mark kind of. Did. I think Marissa and Ryan had done the qualitative work, and then we we joined. It would have been. I think it was my second semester so and the fall of 2017 is when i think i got looped in i know we presented it at academy that following year in 2018 was my first presentation 
so yeah, so I, I guess I, I study uh, organizational citizenship behavior uh, like uh, like Mark. And I also do some stuff in leadership and then job design. I've been here at Kansas State for two years. I just taught my first class today for the semester. And it was the first time I started the semester without a mask on. So yes. <laughs> I tracked down an email in June of 2017. You all completed the transcripts um, being transcribed, all of the interviews being transcribed. So then I think we probably met in the early fall in 2017 and then tom got involved uh shortly thereafter we had that conversation mm -hmm. i want to say it took us a year did ryan does that sound right for us to get all of our interviews yeah interviews you know yeah exactly and the analysis was took quite a while too so uh -huh. okay so am i up i'll, I'll go quickly That's I'm, I'm Dr. Ryan Weissel. I'm Professor of Organizational Communication in the Department of Communication here at OU, and I study leadership, communication, behavioral ethics, and uh, qualitative methods. Um, so that's my um, uh, I don't my involvement. Yep, got going. Marisa is, is my uh, doctoral advisee, and uh, was really pleased to be part of the process. Yep. One thing that I really, really liked about your paper was how you laid out the story in the article and the fact that you did not put your methods all in one method section. I feel like that was golden because it really kept the reader understanding your thought process in terms of you're trying to explore qualitatively, you're going to try to test what you're thinking, and then you're going to then refine it with an experiment. I thought it was genius. So my question about that is, is that how it was originally structured when you uh, went and submitted it to ANJ, or did that kind of evolve after the review process? However, I think at first we've been talking about the paper but we haven't actually discussed what the paper is about <laughs> yes. good point yes good point yeah so maybe who is the most confident right now could you give us a quick elevator pitch and then you know yeah. kind of tell us how it is broken down so basically we were interested you know when we didn't have hypotheses about what these strategies would be that you know people would use to communicate with their partners but but when they did that qualitative analysis they they identified this uh this idea of invoking prior conversations they you know and, and honestly we had slightly different labels i think for these strategies they, the labels themselves sort of evolved during the uh, review process and i actually think the way the reviewers challenged us on what we were actually capturing caused us to sort of refine the labels to make them more accurate. Um, but, but essentially that people would invoke prior conversations where they said, we've already discussed this before, you, you knew I was gonna have to go beyond the call of duty in certain times, um, that they would project payoffs and, and how this would benefit the employee and the family unit if they did these extra behaviors, um, you know, and, and then also these ones that are more focused on the the partner and in sort of asking permission to do these extra things, giving early notice, trying to negotiate some of the logistics of sort of managing the family in their absence. Um, and so those were the strategies that were identified in the in the first study. And then we try and look at how 
those strategies affect uh, the actual performance of OCB, the work family conflict that is experienced by the employee, and and then and the and the partner, uh, sort of the the joint work family conflict, and then the partner's satisfaction um, with the relationship and with the communication strategy that the employee was using. Um, and, and basically, we find that. Um, you know these these strategies do affect those those outcomes and um, it, you know that that's sort of the, the the synopsis. So you mentioned earlier that the paper has changed a lot since the initial uh, class paper submission, but when you were in the review process, did the paper change drastically at all? If so, how? I can jump in with the qualitative part of that. So we did get some comments that required us to, after collecting data for like a year, go get even more <laughs> interviews because um, there wasn't a, a, I think if I remember correctly, the reviewers wanted more diverse types of couples. And when you recruit from your own network, you do get a somewhat, you know, hom homogenous, uh, very white collar college professors, you know, that kind of thing because we work in academia. So we tried to get some uh, blue collar type couples where at least one spouse was um, working um, in, in a non-white collar industry. So yeah, I saw the footnote in the article about how you collect, you went above and beyond on getting interviewed out of the, uh, and having a diverse uh, interview population or something. It was in one of like, I don't know, the first 10 pages and it was down at the bottom. And I wondered if that had occurred during the review process or if it was just like oh this is brilliant we just need to do it <laughs> um, i can say with some certainty that nobody volunteers to get more interviews when you've been collecting it was kind of a punch in the gut actually it was like oh you more okay that's great but uh luckily with ryan uh he's such a great research partner we split it up and we're able to get it done pretty quickly i think we got it done in just a few weeks is that right, Ryan? Like yep, five, sounds right. five or six weeks or something to get all those interviews. And then we were able to do some of them via Zoom or on the phone. So that was helpful too. But we did have to go back and collect more data, which for a, a qualitative research project, that can be very, very daunting. Very right. daunting to have to go back and get more interviews. Mm -hmm. Sure. Yeah, the good thing is that because they were just sort of validating the strategies, it was a relatively small sample and and I was pleased that the editor and the reviewers were sort of satisfied that, you know, that that we had kind of done our due diligence on kind of checking those strategies. And and the same would be for the experiment. That was something we also added to address a couple of different concerns that had been raised in the reviews. Um, you, you know, and in fact, the original version of the paper was a little bit more like a scale development and validation efforts. We were actually um, modeling it, I think after Detert and Edmondson's paper on implicit voice theories. We, you know, I, I always like to sort of say, what is my paper, you know, ideally, does it look like another paper that I know and like? And then I try and kind of craft it around that. And well, that, Mark, wasn't yeah. I thought it was Amy Edmondson's paper oh, on flourishing yeah. via workplace relationships. 
Well, yeah, two. That's the one I was modeling. Two two of those papers. Yeah, there's the one with, um, well, Joyce Bono and and Amy Colbert. Yeah, they're 2016. And also that other one, because we were going to develop this measure of these communication strategies. So Mm -hmm. we would identify these strategies. But yeah, Tom's right. It was also that other AMJ. So there were two other AMJs that we were sort of modeling our paper after um the regression weights analysis is from the paper tom was sort of talking about we we loved the way they kind of showed which strategy sort of added more explanatory value so it was kind of elements of both and then of course through the review process it ended up being something you know that's a more unique from both of those papers um, and the reviewers didn't seem to like the scale validation sort of aspect of the paper, and that ended up being an appendix um, mostly. Oh, so what about yeah. the structure of the paper? Um, going back to before we talked about the paper itself, did you guys kind of already have it laid out um, where it was telling the story as you went, or in the beginning was it uh, more like a traditional AMJ paper where you have all of the methods in one section and then you explain the story kind of in the front half? Or did that evolve in the review process? I, 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 someone can correct me if they have a different interpretation or recollection. But, but my, my re- recollection is that it was sort of like that. In, I think it was a study one, study two sort of design. But, you know, it, it definitely evolved in terms of how the, you know, how we told the story and why we were doing the other study and and that sort of, um, you, you know, the way it sort of laid out and and. You know, we had a great editorial team, I, I felt, in terms of giving us a lot of direction. And, uh, you, you know, it's always it's challenging because we had an editor and three reviewers. And I don't think they always necessarily agreed on on sort of what the best path was. But um, but between the, you know, the four pieces of input that we were getting, you know, I, I do think they kind of helped us navigate that you know, pretty well. Did you have any pushback from reviewer feedback? You know, they gave you some feedback, mm, you know, I think our way might be better. Did you have any pushback to the reviewers in the process? I mean, there wasn't, one of the reviewers really wanted us to do like, a, cause ours looks at communication. They wanted us to get something that looked at like back and forth between the partners. We just didn't have the data. We justified why what we did, what we did, but that was a big, or that was one of the reviewers really wanted us to do this dyadic. I can't remember the, I don't remember the an analysis they wanted us to use. A- APIM, actor partner. Yeah, action actor model. partner. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Which would have been great if we would have had the data, but we didn't. So mm-hmm. fortunately, we satisfied them with our. That'll be for a future study. It'll be wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> it's <gonna> be very <laughs> good. <laughs> Yeah, and it would have added a whole nother layer of complexity to yeah. what, you know, what we were trying to do. I, I, you know, I think that would be, you know, so I, I think the reviewers had a lot of constructive criticism, some of which we addressed and some of which were left for directions for future research and, and that sort of thing. Um, yeah. But it was, you know, um, they, you know, they, they had a lot of challenging, uh, a lot of challenging feedback. Um, yeah, yeah. I see it went through four rounds of revision. Something like that. Yeah, yeah. The, yeah. And it's, I, it's funny. You you asked something about the dates. It was um, we sent it in on 
on May 2nd of 2020. And we actually got that first decision letter less than two Day. months later. It was on Father's Day, right? June 21st, 2020. Is that? I, I mean, I just remember the email. You said, Happy yeah. Father's Day. We got an R&R. &R. Uh, yeah. <laughs> June, June 21st. So less, less than two months, five weeks later, basically, we got that first. Uh, no, um, I'm sorry. Uh, seven weeks later, we got that first decision letter. Um, but yeah, but it was a lot of work afterwards. And, and one of the challenges also, I, I felt like we were a little bit constrained in terms of what kind of data we were going to be able to collect during the pandemic on this topic. Because, um, it, you know, having these conversations, you know, I, I feel like a lot, some of the things that we were talking about in the paper are, are less likely to be happening during the pandemic. Mm -hmm. like going to a client dinner after work i mean mm -hmm. people were zooming you, you know so yeah going to a professional conference like we, it, you know, we yeah. Were to do that. yeah yeah that, mm -hmm. yeah so you know um it was easier to do sort of that third data collection with the hypothetical vignettes you know because even during COVID, i think people could accurately sort of think about how they would respond to communications from their partner but collecting that data during the pandemic, I think would have been tough. Mm. Yeah. So you guys had a really quick turnaround, obviously, from submission to getting that first R&R. &R. Were you super confident when you submitted it? I mean, some people have different confidence levels, and I'm just curious if you guys were like, yeah, this is going to be a, a, this is going to be a hit. Or I it was like, oh. it down. Never. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, have to tell them, you have to tell them your relationship with this journal. Yeah, I've sent many things to AMJ in the past, and I've um, uh, had a couple of R&Rs at AMJ, and I've never had anything accepted until this paper. So, and, you know, I've, I've been able to publish in the other journals, JAP multiple times, AMR, OBHDP, PSYCH, all the ones, but I have not been able to. So, no, I assumed it would be rejected. Um, <laughs> and even after we got the R&R, &R, I assumed it would be rejected. So, um, yeah. So, so I have a question for, for my co-authors. Did you at any point find yourself speaking to your spouse about how you had to work on the uh, review, like really late hours or anything? And you're like... <laughs> This whole meta moment where you're realizing you're asking permission and <laughs> negotiating <laughs> uh, logistics. We're going to get a pub. We're going to get this pub. Like, it's going to be worth it. And having to go back and do all the interviews, not over again, but get more. And then also the, uh, you know, analyzing transcripts takes forever. So yes. more interviews, more analyzing transcripts. And then Mar I just remembered, Mark, do you remember they wanted me to go through the whole batch of them? And see if we could find any diff anything different, different themes. So going back and analyzing all those, the whole body of of transcripts. I don't know how many pages we had, but we had, I mean, a lot of pages because they were like forty five minute interviews. Sometimes it was a lot of pages. So, so which were you using? Which strategy? Were you projecting payoffs or? Uh... <laughs> it's gonna look great on my view. Can you imagine? 
Can you imagine what what business school would turn me down with this publication? <laughs> and, and, and let me just make two comments. One, and Tom, maybe you can talk about this, but you know, Tom talked about this on his um, when he was on the job market. This paper, and I do think it's a topic that resonates with people because people have used these strategies themselves. But but also, you know, uh, while Marisa was doing a lot of the analyses of the qualitative data. You know, Tom, you know, we have four online supplements, multiple appendices in additional analyses that did not even, you know, that are just in the, you know, the letters that we had. And, you know, Tom ran a lot of that. So there was a lot of reanalysis going on for both the qualitative stuff and the quantitative stuff, you know, and Tom and Marisa really you know, they did, a, I think, the lion's share of those analyses. So um, there was a lot of work in that in that area. For the, so it seems that when this paper was being written, you had two professors and two PhD students. I would say this question's for the PhD students. For our listeners who are currently students, what do you think made you successful, you know, on this paper? What can we take away from you two in order to one day publish in AMJ? I mean, I, I, I mean, I, I guess I, I, you heard what Mark said about what he thought about getting the AMJ, and he taught me all along to just assume things are going to get rejected. I mean, the, the acceptance rate at all our journals are so low, so you know, you, you just try, try your best. But I guess as far as a student, right? So I think this was, I think I did a book chapter first with you, Mark, and then this is kind of the first empirical thing. Um, and Mark gave me a ton of latitude, right? So I came up with all the scale stuff. I I, Mark was obviously double checking to make sure I was doing it right because it was my fir first go. Uh, but I think the, the biggest thing as a student, sometimes you're afraid to just do stuff. You 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 almost are apprehensive, right? I, I, oh, I need my advisor to check. I, and and that's I don't once you I mean now that I'm I'm not that far up, but you, that's not what you want a co-author. You don't want your co-author always saying, "Hey, should I add this scale?" No, you make decisions. You do stuff. Obviously, like, but they they want you to be proactive and just go for it. A good advisor will kind of put the guardrails, but they want someone who's going to actually go. And I think, I mean, yeah, so I was, a, I, yeah, I did a lot of, I, I interfaced a lot with the, the data collection companies and a lot of that stuff. Um, I was paranoid the entire time. <laughs> I'm still paranoid. Like, did I mess up? Like, did I put the wrong number? I like double, triple, quadruple checked everything with like yes. the retraction watched, all this other stuff, which is great, but it just <laughs> I, uh, I messed something up. And some appendix and someone's going to say, hey, your CFA, your degrees of freedom are wrong. And it's just like, oh, no. But yeah, yeah so I guess that would be my advice. You just be really proactive. And just go for it. Don't and I love Tom's paranoia, which I share. So <laughs> I, I appreciate sure. that I I've transferred that to him. Um, yeah. the, the paranoia of, of double, triple, quadruple, you know, checking. You know, I'll just also just say for PhD students, you know, work hard like the two of them did. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I mean, they both worked incredibly hard. This is not one of those papers where students were along for the ride. I mean, you know, and, and honestly, you know, Marisa, you can tell your story as the PhD student, but I mean, it all started with her idea on a, on a paper for a PhD seminar, which is pretty impressive. I want to echo all of those sentiments because uh, somebody um, during my program 
think it was a student that was a couple years older and I can't remember who it was, but they said, write every paper in every class like you're going to try and publish it. And you see so many people, you you do even in PhD programs who are like, ah, I just got to get it done. And that's fine. But I really took that to heart. And I said, I'm going to try to publish everything, like anything that I do or that I work on, I'm going to see what can happen. Like, what's the worst that could happen? So, of course, I was scared. I was like, ah, I'm going to ask Dr. Bellino if maybe this could possibly be worth anything, you know, and and he was like, yeah, let's do it. Let's. And I was like, okay, but I need Ryan because Ryan's my advice. I need him. <laughs> and and he, Ryan also gave me so much confidence in how he's worked with me through the whole time. He's, you know, how it's been 9,000 semesters uh, that I've been in the program. He's been there with me every single semester and like helped me. I could ask him any question. Yeah. He, no question is too dumb. And so I think uh, Mark is very much the same way. No question is, is dumb. Like, you can ask this. And so they made me feel comfortable doing this for the first time because they knew exactly how to kind of guide the process. And then but also gave me enough freedom to make my own decisions and yes. also make the mistakes, you know, and just kind of reassured me that no mistake, pretty much no mistake is, is going to ruin it. You know, yes. you can always fix things, which kind of gave me the confidence to try and do things on my own. Which that's good because there are a lot of advisors where they do not hold the same uh, sentiment when it comes to that. It's if you ask too many questions or you don't have an answer for me, I'm not going to work with you. And it is literally soul crushing for, for a PhD student, especially because we know that we're kind of the underdogs around everybody else and we just want to learn so badly. And so when you have this inner desire to want to learn and then someone kind of shoots you down and makes you feel like you can't learn, that just, it's defeating. And so I'm so glad to hear that your experience has been great. I think every PhD student should have an experience like that. And it really paid off for you, especially. (laughs) For sure, for sure. Well, I just wanted to say one other thing, you you know, a lot of times students do the papers for the seminar and they say, oh, well, first they might say, is this worth doing? And I'm sort of like, I don't know if I really see a path forward on this paper. Um, And I definitely saw a path forward on her proposal. And so I was excited when she said she wanted to do it. And I was excited when she wanted to involve Ryan, too, because he's sort of a legend on the OU campus in terms of qualitative methods and I haven't done much with qualitative methods. It like like Marisa was saying about OB, you know, they're doing a lot of the a lot of things that are similar to what we're doing, but view them in a very different way. And so I was excited to to connect on a project with both of them. But then also even when students say they wanted they want to do it and I think there's promise, a lot of times they don't actually mm-hmm. see it through. So mm-hmm. you know when I was getting these updates of like, oh, you know, we're going to start doing interviews. And I was, you know, I guess I was a little bit skeptical of like, is this really going to happen? Because so many times students aren't really doing, um, you, you know, the project really isn't moving forward. So, um, but when they came, I still remember, because I was in a different office that I'm pointing to. Um, <laughs> when they came to my office and sort of presented the qualitative findings to me, I was like, wow, this is really, you know, 
this really does have good potential. So I was, um, yeah, putting in the work, I just think is so, you know, actually getting it done, not, not just talking about it is so important for PhD students. Okay. Yeah, being very proactive. Let's talk about how could scholars, PhD students, rising faculty, or anybody really, what could they uh, take away from your paper and try to build off of uh, to try to publish an AMJ, for example? What are some of those great future directions? Well, I think one we've we've kind of hinted at before, which would be great to go dyadic. It'd be great to have, um, you know, the other other side of the coin here. Um, how are spouses receiving um, these kinds of things? That'd be fascinating. Mm -hmm. uh, another thing that was sort of an obvious thing that came up in the discussion is that, you know, um, some of these things are sort of proactive strategies that people use and that there may be cases where people are talking about after the fact, you know, not asking permission, but sort of begging forgiveness um, in terms of I went the extra mile and now I'm in trouble and, you know, I didn't negotiate logistics and I dropped the ball and, you know, sort of the, the repair, I guess, of the relationship mm -hmm. due to this, this sort of uh, going the extra mile. But one, one larger thing I'll say is I've been told multiple times in my career that OCB is a dead or dying area. Um, and so I, I would just, for PhD students in particular, I just see a lot of possibilities in a lot of areas that people say, oh, that area is done. So, you know, I just think if you like a topic and you're interested in it, you know, it's easier to sort of find what's new there. And yeah, I think there's stuff that can be built directly off this paper, but also just in general, there are new ways of looking at phenomenon that we've been studying for, you know, many, many years. Um, mm -hmm. So yeah, don't feel discouraged as a student about, you know, everyone goes through these periods where they're like, oh, everything's been done on this topic. Um, and I, I just think that, you know, that's an, kind of an easy out, you know, and instead you got to kind of look harder. I agree. I, I really agree with what you're saying. Yes, there are. Um, yeah, I've, I've heard those uh, those last calls uh, made over many a literature before, you know, the next great big insight comes. And, you know, oftentimes those great insights do, in fact, come from junior scholars because they show up and they have, I don't know, they either something has changed in our environment or they have a, a new focus that um, can breathe a lot new uh, new life into literature, which can be really exciting. Mm -hmm. and, and probably taking an interdisciplinary perspective, like getting hooked up with people in communication, you, you know, opens up new ways of thinking about some of these things. Yeah, I, I found it very educational. I learned a lot um, kind of seeing the ways that Mark and Tom took apart questions and reviews. Uh, it's it's some it's different. There's some different conventions and standards of, of how how to do that. And so I learned a lot. It was really that was really exciting. I agree that the disciplinary thing is cool. I'd also add I really like that this does. It's both work and family. It's like a work, organization and family. This paper is kind of an intersection there. And I think that's a great model of what else to go do or, or how to kind of uh, copy this in, in different places. Yes. Can, can I ask a quick question that I've been wanting to ask my co-authors? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. In, in communication, w was the review process 
uh, very different in management than it is in communication and in, in interacting with the editor and the reviewers and the, the nature of the feedback and how critical people are and asking for these things. Is that kind of the same thing you guys deal with? I would say in some ways, yes, in some ways, no. I mean, definitely um, cri critical reviewers are, are uh, everywhere, apparently. <laughs> uh, but, you know, of course, that's what a reviewer does. They need they need to raise um, their concerns. And, and uh, yeah, that that wasn't um, too different. It was it was voluminous. The I mean, just the, the raw amount, uh, I think, was I've only seen that maybe one or two other times. And I don't know if that's because it is it has it is AMJ and people eat reviewers have a sense of that and they're gonna um, um, that kind of thing I think in we don't tend to have as long of papers I mean it's this paper is what 60 something pages and I think that one limb that one point means that there just comes to comes a point where reviewers aren't going to ask for another study because it's like well I don't know where it's going to fit you know that kind of thing right. so that might be a big difference that I saw, which was that, but wait, do we have room for another study? Well, apparently we do. Yeah. So, <laughs> so you'd mentioned earlier that one of the unique aspects about this paper is it meets at the intersection of work and family. And that's one of the reasons why I was very interested in, you know, speaking to you all about your paper is because I believe there are a lot of practical implications uh, from your study that our non-academic listeners um, can learn from. So what are some of the things that you know, our managers you know, who are listening to our podcast can learn from your paper that they can apply you know, to their workplace? But you know, it, would it be all right if, if maybe I took kind of the family side and somebody else took the management side? I, for me as a, um, you know, as, a, as a husband and a dad, I think that I take some of these things, I take the, these findings they tell me that if I, you know, my partner's satisfaction, uh, my mar marital satisfaction will um, be helped or improved by doing things like providing early notice, seeking permission, negotiating logistics. These are other folk. They're other oriented. They're, um, it's, it kind of provides a sense of agency and decisional, you know, power to my spouse when I say, you know, um, hey, this is happening and I, I, I get that on the calendar as soon as I can and I, I voice it when I say uh, you know hey I've I've already made a call to you know your mom or my my mom and I think mom can help or I think uh, grandpa can drive that day or what you know I got a babysitter all, all that kind of thing that's that uh, providing uh, logistics that's gonna go a lot farther than things like uh, just assuming that hey we've already had the conversation we know that I'm supposed to go work late late in weekends this kind of thing or um, even projecting payoff, uh, projecting payoffs. I have to say, just candidly, I think I have voiced projected payoffs often, where I say I think this is going to ultimately pay off. And OCBs, they have that, they have that quality where um, they're ambiguous. Their payoffs are often ambiguous. It often has to do with the impressions we believe we're kind of creating. And uh, how they get rewarded can be kind of nebulous. And so uh, some of these findings are suggesting to maybe focus more on the kinds of strategies with my with my wife in terms of you know providing early notice uh, logistics seeking permission and that kind of thing and perhaps avoiding some of those others what about for managers uh, others um, advice for managers uh, yeah I don't I may mark has some more, but I, I mean this I, the whole question mark and I actually just exchanged some emails over this on quiet quitting is really popular right this idea basically people are saying we're not doing anything extra 
And I know, I know Mark's advisor, my academic grandfather, told him, he said, OCDs are just a way to make people work without paying them. Yes. <laughs> and, and that's basically, I mean, I think he's spot on with the sentiment of a lot of employees now are, why am I going to do all this extra stuff? Mm-hmm. And, and I think our paper gets into this idea of how, how can you balance? How can you do that? And, and I mean, the research shows a lot of people are kind of like, it helps you, but there is this, like, you need this balance. How can I navigate? How can I, I, I balance? But I, I think there is a lot of implication. That, and you asked about implication. We talked, looked at like, how do spouses talk about it? I think we need to do a lot more. How do, how do managers try to talk to employees, right? We, we know kind of these proactive stuff. A lot of this is reactive. How are managers communicating extra role behaviors to their subordinates, right? We know they're asking. They have to be. How are they doing it? And how are they doing it effectively? And no one's really looked at like, how are managers trying to communicate to do citizenship behavior? Are they just telling them? Are they kind of leaving it ambiguous? Are they trying to sell it? Are they saying, hey, this is really going to help you in the long run? Are they projecting those future payoffs? Are they saying, hey, you 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 signed up for this, right? Making assumptions. <laughs> you, you signed up on the job. It's just part of the job. You got to work real hard. So uh, yeah, I'm from the manager side, right? I think it's important to really be thinking because I think a lot of employees are thinking, hey, why should I do extra stuff? And, and there could be unique strategies that yeah. you know that aren't like ours, but like things like role modeling, that kind of behavior mm-hmm. that are sort of mixed in there. Or if you're, you know, you're saying one thing and doing something different, that could also <laughs> be an interesting dynamic to explore. Um, I mean, I think that was one of the interesting things that we found that, you know, the the more other oriented strategies, the other concern strategies seem to help with, you know, things on the home front. but the, you know, in terms of having a positive association with actually doing OCB, it was the more self-concerned strategies. And so, um, you know, it's it's hard to sort of say which strategy should you use because it sort of depends on, okay, are you focused maybe a little bit more on your career and, and kind of going the extra mile? Or are you focused more on, you know, trying to keep things um you know uh, manageable back home um and so you know it, it it's kind of hard for us to advise, to tell people here's what you should do you know you should you know i probably should say you should prioritize your family but there are you know i'm sure there are times in people's lives where you know giving some extra priority to their career could make sense so it's you know i think for us it's more a matter of kind of presenting the research and letting people sort of decide for themselves what, you know, what takes the priority. What working styles or even writing strategies or personal qualities about each other, what made your collaboration really successful with one another? I mean, I'll say, you know, especially since I was sort of the lead on the response and sort of managing the process. I mean, for me, it's having super responsive co-authors. I mean, you know, these uh, these co-authors were just, you know, they didn't, a lot of times co-authors just kind of drop, you know, they disappear or, you know, and, and there were times when we needed quick turnarounds and I just felt like everybody was very responsive and that's wonderful. You know, of course, when it's an AMJ, you, you know, I think people have a, some incentive to be responsive, but, um, well, yeah. I have to add to that. I did not see myself as responsive. So I'm really glad that you said that, Mark, because I I was just going to say, 
that I think this worked because I, I feel like everybody was super patient with me and super flexible because when we were doing these revisions, it was like, oh, I ha- I was pregnant. I had a really bad pregnancy. And then I had my son and then we had the pandemic. So I had like a newborn and then my older son was at home and everybody was at home and I'm just so glad. I'm so glad everybody was super understanding anytime that I was like, I'm so sorry. I just really like, I'm trying, but I'm drowning here. And and I feel like my team was so understanding of that. And I'm just so glad we got it done. I'm just so glad (laughs) (laughs) that it was done. And yeah, I I see a week in the hospital during this paper. I mean, it was kind of a a drama. (laughs) Drama, like nightmare. And then I'm like, oh my gosh, I got to get these, I got to get stuff back to people who are waiting. And we don't want this to take, you know, six more years, seven more years. We want this to get done. And yeah, but it did. It got done. So thank you for being patient. (laughs) So I I noticed that, uh, or perhaps you can tell, we're kind of a team of four, but two teams of two. Yes. Yeah. Um, and that worked out, I think, really well for us in yeah. that way. Yeah. Um, and and then there could there was some division of labor. Um, that, uh, there were a lot of division of labor that followed. And uh, Mark was really good at pointing our uh, Marisa and I's attention towards here's how you can help. And that, I think, really just very practically helped helped us focus where we needed where we could make a quick contribution, where we could be responsive. And uh, rather than here's the, you know, here's the review, what do we, do? you know, this kind of thing. Uh, it, so it was nice. It was great. He, he led well and, and uh, allowed us to, you know, showed us the way to, to um, contribute very practically. I think there was a point when they were asking for a lot of stats to be rerun, right, Mark, or to like do more analog- different kinds of analyses. And we were kind of like, well, that sounds like a lot of work for you guys, but like, what can we do? Where I kind of felt, I kind of felt jealous sometimes because I, <laughs> I thought they were going to have more problems with some of the qualitative stuff, they had more <laughs> problems with the, the theory and the, and the quantitative stuff, and that fell more in our laps, you know. But then they came back and had you guys do yes. the interviews, and then I felt a little better. <laughs> were you hoping? <laughs> and then he reminded me, he was like, remember we did all those interviews? <laughs> remember first, and had to read and analyze all of them? I was like, oh, yeah, but I really felt bad because it seemed like a lot of the, the revision or a lot of the work, it was like we, we couldn't help. But, yeah, it, it, it turned out great. I, 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 it, it, yeah, and it's funny you think of, you know, the patient stuff. I, I just felt everybody was super responsive. Um, we, we got everything done in a, you know, in a timely manner. I, mm-hmm. It was a, it was a special team to be part of. I was really, really grateful. It sounds like it. It sounds like it. Yeah. Sounds all great. right. Well, it was, it was so nice to meet you all. You. It's cool. Yeah, thank you all so much. Everyone. Bye. 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 Bye.